Good evening and welcome to the latest installation of Building the Scottish State with myself, Dr. Mark McNaught, here on the 25th of November, uh, 2021. And I have the great pleasure of having with me this evening Gordon McIntyre-Kemp, who, among other things, is uh, is the head of business for Scotland. And we're going to speak about in more depth, uh, certainly this evening, is Believe in Scotland and the recent Autumn for Indy action campaign that has been initiated. So first of all, uh, Gordon, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be okay. here. So first of all, if you could give us just a, a brief biography about yourself. Are you the founder of Business for Scotland? Uh, yes, I'm the founder of Business for Scotland. I um, started off as uh, an economist. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I started off working for a company called Procter & Gamble, big American company I know. in marketing. You'll know that one. Uh, yep. And then to a big uh, food company called Northern Foods PLC, Foxy's mm -hmm. Biscuits and uh, Good Guys Pizzas or Chicago Pizzas it was and all those sort of things um, uh, and lots of cakes, most, most of the sandwiches and Marks and Spencers, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, and from there to Scottish Enterprise, which is the Scottish government's economic development arm. And I was there for about four and a half years in national economic planning. Oh, that was the, the, the late 90s. I, sh I should have lied and made myself seem a bit younger. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, the late 90s, last, that last century. And uh, I've done run a few companies, been a, a director of a few firms, was basically in, I think it was 2011, the SNP got the uh, majority and that meant there was going to be a referendum. So I said to myself, right, well, I'm going to start a, a, an organization called Business People for Independence, because uh, I happen to know a few handful of business people that supported independence. So I phoned up Jim Maver and said, you know, I would like to, to do this. And he said, ah, actually, there's an organization that existed to campaign for devolution called Business for Scotland. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about who would like to pick it up again for the, for the referendum. And we think it should be you. So I picked up this old organization and ran it completely independently of uh, the SNP or the Greens. Or, well, the Greens weren't necessarily uh, part of the Yes campaign to begin with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and ran that during 2014. We were the biggest spender uh, of all the registered yes groups and uh, had a, a big fight in our hands over the sort of economy and the scaremongering, etc. We had some uh, about 14 spokespeople who were on TV a lot, etc. And it was quite a learning curve. I just wish I'd known then what I know now about independence well, I, I, campaigning. Exactly what I'd like to ask you is what did you learn from that experience? I mean, from my more broad perspective, it was the question of the currency and that yeah. was widely credited with maybe, you know, because there wasn't a really good answer on that. Back prior to 2014, I, I was speaking to my uncle. He's quite aged. And I was asking about mm -hmm. independence. I was like, oh, Alex, Hammond, how much is it going to cost me? You know, I want numbers. I want yeah. numbers. You know, so so what did what did you learn from that from that experience that you'll do differently well, in the next one? Loads, basically. But the yeah. the first thing that came to mind was that the Scotland's Future paper, uh, when it came out, just didn't have enough in it about the economy. And it was when I read that, I just went, ah, this is now going to be really tough. It wasn't forward thinking enough. It didn't really put a really solid vision for what we would do with the powers of independence and the sort of country we wanted to run and how our economy would run and thrive as a result of these powers. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. enough in there as far as I was concerned. And I think that's something that we have to, to, to change. I think also, uh, you know, we need to put, a, a, I think, and I think coming up to the next JERS, I'm not one of these people who says that JERS is, uh, is rubbish data and all that sort of stuff, because I've been through every line of JERS at least twice with the people who collate it. And I've mm -hmm. had some success in talking to them about what should and shouldn't be included and all these sort of things. And, and even just earlier on this year, I had a, a one-hour uh, Zoom meeting with them on, on various methodologies, etc. So I think the data is as good as anyone has for what is essentially a region of a country. 
because yeah. that's how JERS treats us as a region of a country. And therefore, it's the, we're not we're yeah. a country within a union, but JERS doesn't think that. And therefore, it takes money that is spent outside Scotland and just arbitrarily applies it to Scotland. And 100% of Scotland's debt uh, or uh, deficits are caused by the fact that we have actually been subsidising the UK for generations. Yes. And I think that although JERS is useful in that respect, in terms of the core data that is in JERS, is the core data we will use to forecast an independent Scotland's economy, given the different policies uh, we'd put in place. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's still a worthwhile data. The thing is, we do actually have to do that job this time and present uh, a full economic case for independence and say, this is what we're going to do differently. This is how you will thrive as a direct result mm -hmm. of independence and the policies we'll put out there. What is the Scottish debt? I because as far as I understand, the Scottish government can't borrow money, and so uh, and so what what is the debt? Is it just a question of the difference between uh, the amount of money that's spent in Scotland and the tax revenue that is goes into the treasury, or how is debt calculated and who owes what to who? What you've just described is the deficit, and it's a, it's a very notional deficit because it's a spend which is arbitrarily applied to Scotland, such as defence spending that happens outside of Scotland. Oh, right, right, yeah. Such as such as things we wouldn't necessarily spend money on, nuclear weapons, et cetera. The cost of Brexit is, is one of the biggest costs uh, right now. Um, the way that COVID was mishandled has been incredibly expensive. That has been added, population percentage share, et cetera, to our accounts. But the main thing is actually that in the the years, the, the 34, 35 years, I can't remember off the top of my head it was, that, 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 that even JERS, with all these ghost costs, uh, you know, making it look as if Scotland's economy wasn't performing as well as it was, most of the time that JERS has been produced, Scotland has actually in JERS shown a surplus, but that surplus wasn't spent in Scotland. And if it had been reinvested in Scotland's right. economy, I reckon our economy would be 25% bigger than it is. Our population would be about 10 to 15% bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. We'd be very wealthy. If we'd been an independent nation with the revenues, because I think we've had we've generated about 2% more oil uh, than Norway has, and yet Norway is, you, you can't even calculate how much better off they are uh, than us because they've invested in their own country and we invested in well largely London and the southeast and you know basically uh, that's why our accounts now show a deficit because we didn't get the surpluses to actually invest to upgrade our infrastructure to to invest in our economy there are multiple ways in which there are things such as DVLC in Swansea maybe 500 the cost of 500 staff are applied to Scotland because they're doing all of our vehicle licensing and that is fair except for the fact that when they spend their wages, they spend them in Swansea. They don't spend them here. They don't spend them in the local shops. They don't buy new kitchens. They don't hire joiners. And so that doesn't boost Scotland's economy. And you can take a guess at maybe oh, might, that might help a little bit in this respect or that respect. But that's when the numbers would be crap if you tried to do that. So basically, we have to create a, a set of accounts for an independent Scotland. We have to say that these are the policies we're going to, to follow. This is what we think will happen to the economy as a direct result, and then show people JERS as the UK figures, as if we stay part of the UK, mm -hmm. and then these figures here, which are what we expect, what we're projecting as an independent Scotland. And then that puts JERS in the right context and shows mm -hmm. that it is accurate. It actually just shows it's worse than it will be in an independent Scotland. In, the, in terms of a campaign, and I, I totally agree that you know, there needs, these needs to be you know, much more specified as to what the economy will actually be. How can you guarantee that this will actually be enacted when 
independence is achieved. It's that kind of what I perceived also in, in addition to what you said in the last referendum, because I, I had you know worked on a constitution that I'd proposed and I sent mm. to the Scottish government. My my view was that they should put that out there or another interim some kind of interim constitution at least and say this is what the state's going to be like, so people know what they're voting for. From an economic point of view, I mean, would you be in favor of, of Scotland creating its own new currency, for example? And can you put that forward in a campaign saying we are going to create a new currency and then and this is why it will be enacted when independence is achieved and not just a promise that kind of vaporizes? How, how do you see well, making these proposals binding? What I'm actually asking for is for the Scottish government to do this work, not for yes groups to do the work, etc. It has to have the same kudos, the same... Uh, authority as JERS and has mm -hmm. to be a Scottish government projection with the policies that we, if we are re-elected, will put in place. And that answers that question, I think, because I think everybody just accepts that the SNP, having delivered independence, will be the first, well, for several years anyway, because there won't be another election for a few years, will be the yeah. first government of an independent Scotland, and they will therefore implement those. And the thing about that is, if you don't like the way they're implementing them, then you'll, there'll be an election along a couple of years later and we can get rid of them. So basically, to actually have the vision to say, this is what it's going to be like, this is how we will thrive, whereas actually if we stay with the UK, we're going to have trouble even surviving um, mm -hmm. as an economy. Because, you know, there is real trouble coming with... Brexit, that the, the real damage of Brexit hasn't hit yet, but there's just so much incompetence and so much corruption. And I think for the first time in, 20, in 2014, voters thought the UK was okay. They thought David Cameron was okay. They mm -hmm. thought that, um, you know, it wasn't too damaging to stay. So therefore, the, the perception of risk was always becoming independent. Uh, now, the perception of risk is, I would say, more in the eyes of most voters staying with the UK. But in order to get them to jump to yes, we have to actually start a campaign and then we have to present them with the alternative vision and then they can balance the alternative vision to the risk of staying with the UK. And if they do that, I think people will move to yes. That's what we're seeing in the polling that we're doing, that when we actually present these ideas to people, they move to yes quite, quite considerably. Okay. And do you get the impression that this work, that this economic uh, planning is going on in the Scottish government? Uh, because we, we we're not aware of it. I mean, what do you know about the, the degree of planning which is occurring at this point? Uh, there are several things which are public that I know that I can talk about. You talked about the Constitution, for instance. There was a, yeah. a group set up under Mike Russell, the head of the independence unit within the, the SNP, invited lots of different people to, to come along and uh, different independence groups, the Commonwealth were there, uh, Business for Scotland and Believe in Scotland were there. A, a draft constitutional statement to, to be given to the people to look at and discuss is being drafted. So I know that that is in, in the public eye. In terms of what I'm saying here, in terms of what I think needs to be done, this is what I am asking the Scottish Government to do. And we are in active conversations with them, shall we say, about what needs to be done. and. There's a great deal of common ground, shall we say, between Business for Scotland uh, and the Scottish government or, or many people in the Scottish government who will be responsible uh, for this work. They haven't come back and said, yes, we will do exactly that. But there is very, very positive conversations uh, have happened. Okay, good. All right, so I'd like to t turn now to uh, Believe in Scotland, another group that you have formed, and uh, uh, and so why wh why was Believe in Scotland formed, and what are you doing? And Business for Scotland is a is a organisation, is a limited company, 
and it is an organization which lobbies for business, uh, which campaigns for independence, which produces materials and has an online magazine, uh, which is uh, very well read. And being the sort of lead business group, we, we carry out a lot of the functions of a normal business organization, such as the Chamber of Commerce, IOD, that sort of thing. Uh, we do some training, we, we do lobbying, we organize annual dinners and, and monthly lunches and networking events, these sort of things. But I decided, I think it was 2018 or 2019, late, mid, mid 2019, to get out on the road and actually go around lots of yes groups and some uh, political party branches and give some talks. And the one thing I was hearing from every single one of them was that no one's producing materials, nobody's coordinating, no one's helping us. Uh, you know, if we want to put a leaflet out, we have to decide it or what it is ourselves, but we don't have the resources to design it properly, etc. Some are doing some things and some are doing other things. And they said, look, we need we need someone to actually fulfill the role of Yes Scotland. Well, they're not in the way Yes Scotland did it, uh, yeah. but actually help us. Uh, and and so uh, I said it was at a meeting. It was a it was a Aberdeen Independence uh, uh, event, and it was about my tenth time that people have been saying this to me. And I said, well, look, we've got a team, we've got salaried staff. How about we provide the service to the Yes movement? And they all just burst out clapping and sort of like you know. And I thought, okay, might be onto something here. So. <laughs> I went away, thought about it, came up with the, the slogan, Believe in Scotland. And with that, started producing materials. And the first material, piece of material we produced was the, um, I think I've got one here, the Scotland, a brief book. This is the yes. mini version. And uh, we've got yes. the maxi as well. And uh, we've sold 42,000 now of well, these books, um, which has been very successful. We're not in the middle of a campaign. 42,000 is a huge number you know, because there's not that many active yes groups and activists, etc. But we decided to finance this differently. We didn't do a crowdfunder and say, look, we'll write a book if you give us money and mm -hmm. we'll distribute it for free. We talked to the yes groups and the yes groups said, well, actually, why don't we buy a book from you in the volumes, etc., that, that we can distribute, but put a price on it. So these, these retail at £3.50, but we sell them to yes groups at anything from, if they order enough, 75 pence. Yeah. Uh, a copy which practically makes no profit for us whatsoever, but they can then sell them out of their shops. And we know that 30 to 40,000 pounds has been raised by local yes groups to campaign locally from the fact that we provided them with this material. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not about us profiting, it's about funding the yes movement. And that was the first thing we did. And then we started to, to say, well, they wanted leaflets to deliver. Uh, our first one was the uh, Scotland's Wealth Leaflet, uh, which yes. basically points out that with 8.4% of the population, most people can rattle most of these off now uh, in yeah. a conversation in a pub, uh, and that's really good. I've even seen uh, I've even seen MPs do it on television. It's quite uh, quite interesting in interviews. We did some billboards last year, and the, uh, one of the big billboards we did was this one here. Uh, the UK pays the worst state pension in the developed world. Mm -hmm. uh, let's raise it to 200 pounds a week. 200 a week was the second time we did it. The first time we said, let's double it. But what it says when you click on the link is that actually we're going to start off with a lower number. And then as our economy grows with the powers of independence, we can afford to raise pension to a higher number. But we've calculated that uh, at that time, £200 a week was the minimum pension that you should give to somebody who has no other private earnings in order for them to live with dignity. I think it's gone up because of inflation, etc. Somebody else has replicated our work and actually figured out it's £209 a week now. But they included Netflix and Amazon Prime subscriptions, and we didn't. And that's kind of the difference. I, I asked one of our, uh, we, we have a, a membership model 
at Believe in Scotland and every month I do a surgery with all the members and we usually get, you know, between 75 and 100 people uh, logging on to, to have an hour's chat or maybe actually about two hours chat. I do go on a bit. And I asked them, I said, well, should we have included uh, Netflix? And it was like universal. Yes, you should. We, we need Netflix. <laughs> the pensioners were like, yeah, we need Netflix. And so we've been campaigning along those lines. We've been doing uh, leaflets. We organized, uh, we've, we've had three different batches of national billboard campaigns right across Scotland and our billboards are very effective. Independence is normal, pensions, independence mm -hmm. is inevitable, pointing out that so many young people uh, want independence, etc. Hammering home key messages that, that are laying the foundation blocks for when we actually really get into the campaign. Uh, we then uh, did a crowdfunder where Business for Scotland donors gave us £60,000 which was to take care of office costs and salaries and admin and these sort of things. And then we raised another £60,000 to match that from small micro donations. And that £60,000 has been spent uh, on campaigning materials only. So every single penny that was raised goes on uh, campaigning materials. And we did the day of action on the seventh anniversary of the independence uh, vote. Uh, and 112 local yes groups signed up. That was a partnership between ourselves, the national and the national yes network, and it worked very well. Uh, we managed to distribute to yes groups 600,000 items of campaigning materials, books, leaflets, uh, a newspaper we did called Open Minds, uh, which was mm -hmm. also in the, in the national. And that was the first part of the autumn of Indie Action that you mentioned. Yes. Uh, and that, that went down very well. More than half of the independence movement was not functioning it was not meeting it was it was redundant and that basically lit a fire under them and actually you know it didn't light a fire under them what it did is it it, it it was a shot in the arm and they went yeah giving us something to do didn't cost anything because we didn't have any funds get out there get on the streets and start having conversations and a lot of them realized because it said believe in scotland uh, and not yes or mm -hmm. not smp or alba or green party or whatever else you would put on there because it said that on most of the stands there were people who were coming up and sort of having more open conversations. So the name really worked. At the moment, we uh, did a, a partnership with the National and the SNP. Mm -hmm. And right now, uh, the SNP are delivering one million copies of this newspaper mm -hmm. uh, across Scotland. It's an eight-page newspaper uh, with content from ourselves, uh, from the SNP, and we also uh, got the Greens involved in that as well, the Scottish Greens. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, it talks about well-being and, and how we can invest in Scotland's well-being uh, with the powers of independence, of what a well-being economic approach is, and how that relates to building back better, how that relates to building resilience into our economy and making choices that Westminster is just never going to make. Um, and so I think fundamentally important message that that comes out with the SNP's logo on it, because it's completely incompatible with the Sustainable Growth Commission, as indeed is the SNP's Fairness and Social Justice Commission is completely incompatible with the Sustainable Growth Commission report. So I, although I think there'll be some stuff like some good research around Scandinavian countries, et cetera, that was used for the Sustainable Growth Commission, that's, that's still very valid, et cetera. But I think a lot of the approaches have changed now, even within the SNP. And this is, this is the, the two parties of government uh, reaching out to the population of Scotland and saying, "We're this is the tack that we're taking now, and we're going to be uh, we're willing to work." Sending a message to the Yes movement that we're willing to work with the Yes movement. It's a one-off. We're not going to do this again. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it was just a, a, people coming together for a statement that was needed in this particular time.
Okay. Because the paper targets uh, the undecided, the soft yesers, and the soft noes. We're not okay. after the yesers. It doesn't matter whether they read it or not. It doesn't matter whether the hard noes read it. It's the people that got us to 58% earlier mm -hmm. this year and late last year, mm -hmm. and then have got worried about COVID, and they're now going, oh, I don't know. We're sending a message to them saying it's the answer to your worries. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it's only then we want to read it. And, you know, I think the content's effective in that respect. Presumably, you, uh, you've you done a lot of public opinion research in developing these proposals. And so I just wanted to uh, wanted just to talk, to talk about that. What polls did you commission? What were the types of questions? What were the findings from these surveys that you had conducted? Mm -hmm. Well, we've published a lot of them. If you go to the Business for Scotland site, there's a there's a uh, an author called Polling Team. It's not always myself, or it could be various people, Richard, etc. And some of the researchers have put uh, information up there, so you can find a lot of the, the data that we published there. We obviously we asked the yes/no question, and we've probably published the yes/no data uh, more often than any other data. But a lot of what we collect is, is private data, which we use to in discussions with uh, the SNP, in discussions with the people working with to, to create policy suggestions, those sort of things. But the main piece of information that we can find is that there is a difference between Scotland and England and how we think what, are, what, what our values are, how dedicated we are to those values. Uh, there are differences in opinions in terms of, and you might say it's because there's more conservatives in England, and I think that's possibly the case. So you would expect there to be slight differences. But if you really want to see the differences, you just need to see who England elects and who we elect. Right. Mm -hmm. Never mind the parties, never mind Boris and Nicola and the personalities, etc. We elect people to the left of centre. They're electing people who are very significantly to the right of centre. And so basically we uh, create, looked around the world at well-being, which we've been campaigning for. It was, it was in our mission statement. Uh, it was all about well-being right from uh, 2011 onwards. And so we looked around the world at governments that were talking about well-being and we took a sort of policies that we could say, well, this is a well-being policy, and we put them all down on a bit of paper, and we thought, these hang really well together. You could use this as the foundation blocks for building a well-being socio-economic approach. And so basically, our mantra is that socialism and capitalism are dead. They're last century's ideas. The challenges of this century, specifically the ecological challenges we've got with, with, with climate change, et cetera, cannot be addressed by the old ideas. We need new ideas. And a well-being approach where we can still grow our businesses, still grow our economy, still create wealth, but do it much more fairly than we currently do and also factor in that we protect the planet and we protect society as we grow. So growth might be a lot slower. Consumerism might have to drop considerably. Uh, but we think there is a, a way to approach this that has you might say some socialist principles in dealing with society, some capitalist principles in dealing with business. But the truth of the matter is that you can't have a strong economy without a strong society. You can't have a strong society without a strong economy. And all that socialism and, and capitalism have done, all that left and right, is we've just swung one way to the other and failed to invest in one half of the formula. And that's why we keep on booming and busting. And so basically, that's what our polling told us, that the people of Scotland are ready to vote for this. And if you say we want a well-being approach to economics in an independent Scotland that will be radically different from the rest of the UK because it will look at fairness, uh, uh, health outcomes, environmental outcomes, and uh, make all of these things as important in our thinking as economic growth is, how would you vote in a referendum if that was the approach we took and it jumps 10%? So a well-being approach takes us to 60-odd percent. Kind of going back to the, the point I made before about the economic policies, how 
you know, do make sure that when people vote for this and OK, yeah, I want to vote because of this well-being policy, that it is actually enacted. Essentially, we are a lobbying organization. We lobby the SNP to make changes. And so we are saying to the SNP, here's our data. Here's what we're finding. Come and talk to us about this. And what we're suggesting is that they put out the alternative jurors, that they put out a new uh, Scotland's future type document, but base it on well-being. And that, that is the manifesto upon which people are voting for independence. This is what they understand they are voting for. And it comes from the Scottish government. And therefore, people will believe it. Now, we can say it and people will say, yeah, you're the biggest yes organization that has a little bit of credibility. Well, it has mm -hmm. credibility amongst the yes community, but it really doesn't have any credibility amongst the, the unionist community if there is such a thing. Mm -hmm. So we need to get the Scottish government to make these commitments. And that is what we are trying to do. And that's what we'll spend the next few months working very closely, we hope, with the Scottish government to make sure that it has uh, a clear uh, path to using a well-being approach uh, or at least as much of it as we can get them to agree to in an independent Scotland. And that, that gives you the surety that that is what's going to happen. I totally agree with you. And I think that they're fantastic policies, but actually how they come about, the more you can work with the SNP government and, and get it to be yeah. you know, binding on it, that, that obviously the better. I did want to move on to a couple of other uh, points. Uh, basically, the, the securing a referendum. I, I know you know as well as I do that there is uh, an impatience uh, regarding the referendum. Nicola Sturgeon has said it would be in 2023, but she has also said that she wants it to be a, you know, under the gold standard section 30. Boris Johnson, I don't know if he'll be there much longer, but he has said he would not allow for it. And I would think that would be the case with any conservative successor. And I've heard it argued that, well, you know, the more support for independence, that that will, it's democratically unsustainable for them to, for the UAK government to deny it. I, I see them completely impermeable to, you know, democratic uh, will. So that's just my view. How, how do you see it in, in achieving a, a referendum that will be legally binding and accepted so first of all, I, I mean, I have a slight affliction that you obviously don't suffer from, uh, and that is that I find it absolutely impossible to believe anything Boris Johnson says. He changes his mind with the wind. And I agree with you. He has absolutely no intention whatsoever agreeing to a Section 30. However, that doesn't mean he won't. Uh, that doesn't mean that when we get to the point where there is a majority government in Scotland, the Greens and the SNP together, and anyone else that wants to, to vote for it votes through the referendum bill and says, we're going to hold a referendum and this is the date. And then the letter goes down saying the new majority government is demanding a Section 30. I would say it's 50-50 whether it will be accepted or not. The reason for accepting it is they might think they've got a chance to win if they can negotiate a little bit around you know, what the question is or what the spending limits are or who can vote, all that sort of stuff. But I think largely if I was the SNP, I would just say it's exactly the same as the last referendum. We, we might stop people with holiday homes voting, but other than that, I'd be happy with that voting franchise. The question, yes, no. Everyone's divided into those camps. We can't change the question. Uh, it, it'd be ludicrous to suggest we could. If they say, look, no, under no circumstances, are you doing this, etc., then the Scottish government will go ahead and hold a referendum without a Section 30. It's not illegal to do so. If the UK yeah. government wants to prove it is illegal, they have to go to court. Let's hope they are stupid enough to go to court and try and stop a referendum when stop a government elected to Holyrood with a majority uh, mandate from holding a referendum. It, it would probably add 7, 8, 9, 10% to the yes vote. 
-hmm. And therefore, we want them to either say yes, and then we'll beat them, or we want them to say no and boost support for independence. Because if they boost support for independence, if they put themselves on the wrong side of the democratic issue, then the other routes to independence come into play. Mm-hmm. Now, you cannot UDI, you cannot simply form, and say, the majority of MPs in Westminster are SNP. So the majority just simply need to say, we withdraw, and therefore it's legal. That is true, actually, you could. They could. They have the power to do so. I believe they have the power to do so. That would also be challenged in, in a court of law. But there's a slight problem here. The, the, the Scottish people don't want them to do that. The support for independence is currently about 50%. I think it really, its real figure should be about 55%. I think there's a lot of people who are just saying, like, not now because of COVID and Brexit and all these sort of things. And, you know, we have to triangulate their problems and show how independence solves those. And we're not going to do that for a wee while yet. So, so you know, but it will come back to where it was at the end of last year. But support for independence sitting at 50% right now is support for independence achieved through a referendum. And that is what the mandate is for. If you want a mandate to declare unilateral uh, independence, then you have to go to another election and ask for that mandate. Mm-hmm. But you can't get that mandate. It, it would drop to about 33% support for independence if we tried to ask that mandate now. And you cannot be accepted by the international community as an independent country if 70% of your population don't want it to happen. You have mm-hmm. to carry the people with you. So exhausting the democratic route. I don't know if we'll have a referendum, a Section 30 referendum or not. What I know is that if we don't exhaust the democratic route, then it doesn't put the other options on the table. So plan B, I would suggest is that at the next general election, if we are somehow stopped through the Supreme Courts, etc., and the democratic route is somehow shut down, then at the next general election, we, we can then ask, quite reasonably, for a mandate to a majority plus one of MPs walks away. Mm-hmm. And then you might get it. You ask it now, you're not going to get it. It's a clever way to actually knock 20% off the independence campaign. Me personally, I'm a little bit invested in all the campaigning. I don't want to lose 20% overnight. And that's why I don't suggest that's the route. But all of these routes are plausible. We just have to exhaust the democratic route first, the gold standard route first. And then the people of Scotland, the soft yeses and the undecideds will let us use the others. But they won't let us use them right now. They'd go mad. Regarding the franchise, uh, there's been, you know, a lot of discussion about that. I saw an (laughs) earlier comment that saying it should only be indigenous Scots. And you mentioned something about the franchise. Well, to hell with that. Right. I'm not I'm not taking that from anybody. That is a ridiculous statement. That mean Mike Russell can't vote. Does that no, mean Lorna Slater no, can't vote? I, I, what is indigenous? I, I, I've got a Spanish great-grandmother and a, and a Russian great-grandmother. Well, I've got a Cossack think, blood in me. What's indigenous? I, I think what they meant uh, would be that only basically long-term residents, people that have truly Well, made, that's not you know, indigenous Scots, but even so. So I've got a problem here, Mark. I really do. I've, I've, I've started to hear one or two people say that sort of thing recently. And as far as I'm concerned, if you say that uh, only true blood Scots can vote, then you turn us into the sort of nationalist movement that everybody despises. It's Mm -hmm. an absolute vote loser amongst true-blooded Scots, Mm -hmm. uh, if there is such a thing. And it's just not, it's not acceptable and it's not who we are. Our nationalism, our national movement isn't a nationalist movement. It's not about being better than other people. It's about the people here sharing values and deciding that we 
uh, as the people who live in this area are going to run our affairs differently. We're going to do things better. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that when I told you about the, the well-being uh, approach and how it makes people jump to yes, yeah. well, if you offer a £200 pension, £200 a week pension is the basic state pension, which is still one of the lowest in Europe. But if you offer a £200 pension and you promise a well-being approach and detail what the well-being approach is, then you get English-born voters to about 50-50 and European-born voters or EU-born voters and voters from elsewhere go to about 67% yes. The problem isn't people who aren't born in Scotland. The problem is people like Gordon Brown who are born in Scotland. It's people that don't believe in Scotland. It's people who kind of hate Scotland and hate the idea of Scotland that we've got to convince. The people who are, were you born here? Are you an indigenous Scot? I mean, di- different people have expressed different views on this, but what, yeah. uh, but w- what one of the concerns that people in my group have raised is that if, and certainly, I mean, oh, people like uh, Math Campbell, who's a head of English, uh, English, um, oh, for sure, great guy. Uh, of course, he, he, you know, he, of course, he would be able to vote. It's not a question of ethnicity; it's just m- more a question of having chosen Scotland to live uh, to, to live there over the long term. Uh, and th- this is where the franchise is, is a little complicated because you ha- you've had apparently uh, since COVID you've had a lot of English people move to Scotland. Whereas in, for example, where mm-hmm. I live in France, I'm a you know I, I well I was a member of the mm-hmm. I, I was a UK citizen until you know that's been taken away from me. Well, it, it, at least my right to be here. But uh, but as a UK citizen, I was able to vote in local elections and European elections, but not. Yep. You know, because, because there was the perception that the, the French people, the French citizens, should be the ones that vote on, you know, on more constitutional matters, including the president, referendums. And uh, whereas mm-hmm. in, in Scotland, you'd be using the local franchise, which could include, you know, people with holiday homes or, you know, um, or, or uh, oh. you know, members of the oh. British Army. It, it's, it's just a question of, because from what I understand, in the last election, you know, people who considered themselves mm-hmm. a Scottish voted uh, for, a, you know, a majority to, to become independent. But it was the other, including holiday homeowners and others, that swung the difference. You know, right. so it's just it's just concern over that that it's not just people who you know have holiday homes and you know uh, British so, soldiers that are stationed here, that kind of thing. So, so, for, so first of all, we we didn't actually track the ethnicity of people who voted yes. Uh, there were some polls afterwards where mm-hmm. uh, it was suggested that that independence was more popular uh, amongst uh, what you would class as Scottish-born, etc. But this isn't a nation just a Scottish-born. It's a, a rainbow coalition nation of people from all over the world and, and so many cultures, diverse cultures that add real value. Um, and uh, right now, I think in the last poll, I looked into the uh, birth, because uh, it's split down by born in Scotland, born in England, born in EU, born elsewhere mm-hmm. in some of these mm-hmm. polls. The last one I looked at, EU and born elsewhere were more pro-yes than Scottish people were. And so, yes, you will find lots of English people, uh, or lots more English people are anti-independence than pro, that is for sure. But if you offer them the right, make the right arguments, then they can, you can get them to about 50-50. The argument isn't who was born where. The the problem we had was that we didn't have a strong enough economic uh, plan, and we didn't have a plan for dealing with all the scaremongering, uh, particularly that was that was very effective in pensioners, and pensioners vote more often, and young people yep. who support independence didn't get out there and vote. So, you know, we had so many problems that are so much bigger than a few holiday homeowners. I mean, it's not as if there's a million holiday homeowners that can sway every election. Yep. There isn't. And in some places, in certain parts of Argyll and Butte and, you know, Shally's up in Aviemore, et cetera, yes, it's slightly more. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not 
uh, that big a, an issue. But I would support talking to the Electoral Commission and saying, let's be very careful about holiday homeowners and people that are actually invested in Scotland voting. But the mm -hmm. thing is, if you say, hey, there's, there's half a million English or 420,000 English people, I can't remember what the number is, live in Scotland, they shouldn't vote, then you, you, you would lose hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Scottish people who would say, oh my God, the SNP and the independence movement are nationalists of the old-fashioned, unreconstructed type, I'm not going to vote for them. It is a massive vote loser. Even if you just want to look at it tact technically or, or tactically, it's a terrible, terrible idea, and it would give them a weapon. It would hand a campaigning weapon that would be a club to beat us with. So no, I'll tell you what, if, if, if it's only Scottish-born people that are allowed to vote, then I won't campaign. I haven't heard it expressed from that. It's just it was more concerns about it's more concerned about uh, you know that the, there's been a, apparently there's been a quite a migration of English people moving yeah. to Scotland over the past few years, and, and I certainly take all take all your points. Of all the English people that I know and Welsh people, and with one exception, the Irish people, including Northern Ireland and Ireland in there, uh, which I probably shouldn't do, all of them are supporters of independence, and I think that people moving from England to Scotland now. If you ask them, is it likely that Scotland's going to become an independent country in the next few years? They'll say yes. Mm. If they were rabid and totally unopen to persuasion with the right policies and ideas, then they wouldn't be moving here uh, because they'd be moving to and worried about a, a foreign country, etc. So some of my biggest donors are English business people who've moved their businesses to Scotland. Because they think we're going to become independent, and they became a. Which brings me nicely onto my uh, kind of final uh, final questions before we get to the questions that have been raised. But um, how do you see business regulation and the way business operates in an independent Scotland? I mean, my, my own view. I'm I'm much more familiar with the United States, but you know, I live in France. But the way I see it, the, the you know, business regulation is has basically evaporated. Over, you know, certainly since the Reagan years of deregulation and especially in the financial sector, where the where, which has permitted a, a very high level of predatory capitalism, charging ridiculous interest rates on consumers and some th certainly policies that would go well yeah. against this notion of a well-being of stock and, and, and where you have Absolutely. so many millions of Americans completely out of their depth and debt, working really miserable jobs. It's really a shame. I've seen it deteriorated so much. I'm less familiar with the UK, but I, I get the impression some of the same, same trends are at play. I live in France, and you know, you know, competition is well regulated. The you're able to for, you know join a union. Uh, you know, you're encouraged to do so. Workers' rights are quite strong. You can't get fired easily. You know, it's a very different environment, and it's sort of a hybrid between capitalism and socialism. Yeah. So, which all countries are to a certain degree. How do you see businesses uh, as someone who is deeply involved and knows a lot about it? and has seen both the excesses of capitalism and of socialism and experience. How do you see business being regulated in an independent Scotland to make, to make, to help make this well-being agenda become reality? Well, a lot of those sort of things you talked about, you know, lending money, you know, the, the sort of, it's, it's gone bust long ago, but you know, yes, car finance, you can't get a loan, you can't afford a car, don't worry, we'll give you the money, but it's at 5,000% APR. Yeah. In, in a, in a well-being socioeconomic approach, that is illegal. You, you're not going to trap people into debt to that level. I think um, in terms of regulations, people say, oh, what if the banks fail in an independent Scotland? Well, if you regulate them properly, they won't. 
exactly. because Gordon Brown didn't regulate the banks at all. In fact, he took away all the regulations, you know, and, and, and other people in his position around the world did uh, the same, uh, that they actually were able to become casino banks uh, and crash. Um, you know, so, so regulation is important, environmental regulation is important, but I think it's not just regulation. Um, I think it's about using taxation to change behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, we've put a, a, a policy suggestion to the Scottish government, uh, which we call uh, benefit corporation tax credits. Now, the idea is that, well, first of all, you stop all offshoring, you stop the use of tax havens, yeah. etc. And if countries are say, well, we'll leave because we refuse to pay the tax that is due, we want to be able to, to, to cheat and rip tax out of your economy, then you're not you know, they're not doing it any good. So it doesn't matter if they leave. If, if, if their operations, if they move their headquarters or whatever, whose headquarters in, in Scotland nowadays anyway, they're all in London. But, you know, so those those companies are not a benefit to Scotland. So if you, for instance, said, well, England is, is lowering corporation tax significantly, what we're going to do is we're going to keep it at 20%. We're going to put it back up to 20%. We're going to keep it at 20%. But if you meet all of our well-being criteria, if you invest in research and development close to market R&D, if you have gender balance on your board, if you pay the real living wage, if you uh, have young people, uh, young people's apprenticeships, if you have um, equality in your hiring policies, um, if you give back to your community, if you do all of these things, if you increase your exports, you know, so some, lots of hard, hard targets in there as well, then every time you do one of these things, you get a tax credit. And you, if you're a company that really is a benefit to our society, that's hiring and training people and creating added value jobs and increasing exports and bringing currency into the country and research and development, which is making you more profitable and you're reinvesting in Scotland and you're paying your taxes and you're paying the real living wage. And if you're doing all of those things, then your corporation tax will be lower than England's. Okay. Now, that might mean Amazon might go, oh, we're not very happy, but yeah. as a whole bunch of country, companies around the world that will go, whoa, let's move to that country. Yeah, yeah. Let's invest, let's put our European headquarters there. But it pays for itself because your benefits go down if people start getting paid the full real living wage. Mm-hmm. The health outcomes increase, all those sort of things. So you can use taxation and regulation in parallel to create a high value, high wage growing economy, which is growing through adding value, not growing through consuming and destroying the planet. That brings me to another question. Assuming that the Scottish government was able to enact these types of policies, a good balance between regulation and taxation that gives incentives to not, and all exactly what you say, how can we make the Scottish government not, not possible for it be, become completely corrupt as it is in the United States and to where all these things could be reversed by some lobbyists going up and giving a bunch of money to some politician and they just get rid of the regulations as they have done in the United States? How, how do you make the Scottish government have more integrity so that it can't be as easily corrupted as, as the United States government has currently become? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is regulation, lobbying regulations. We already have quite strict ones in, in Scotland. And, you know, they are very aware and careful of, about that. If you have more than 10 employees, every single meeting you have, you know, has to be noted, minuted and declared and all that sort of thing. So the big lobbying companies can't uh, necessarily meet with ministers as often uh, as they would uh, they would like to. And what are the penalties for violation? Because we see what's going on in Westminster right now with all the second yeah. jobs and all that stuff. And, you know, it's as if there's just no rules or, or if, even if there are rules, there's simply not. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I, I believe Westminster to be a totally uh, corrupt institution and the House of Lords is even worse because it's not even remotely democratic. Holyrood was supposed to be better. The only thing that's stopping it from being much better is the dividing line of independence because they would work together for the betterment of Scotland after independence. But there will never be working together whilst independence is, is still uh, unresolved. And it will never go away except for the yes vote. So, you know, there's a clue if you want a better working parliament and better relations between the parties, that's how to do it. So first of all, you regulate on lobbying, you, you find the best practices from around the world and you make sure that there are no loopholes, etc. The second thing you do is you take the powers of the parliament and you don't just leave them in the parliament. You don't have people who are all powerful and unanswerable. You take the powers of the parliament, you distribute them around the country. There are decisions that should be made locally that are being made centrally right now, partly because of budgetary constraints, because it can sometimes cost a bit of money to make them do them locally, etc. But you distribute powers and you have meaningful powers in councils, you have meaningful powers in, in regions, and you have meaningful powers even from the councils devolved, if you like, subsidiarity, that every decision that affects people should be made as close to the people affected as it can be, whilst having checks and balances to make sure that the we're not disrupting everything by making decisions that mean that the national picture degrades. So basically, uh, don't make it all powerful, devolve power within Scotland and uh, regulate very strongly. Uh, and also, I'd like to see, not it probably won't happen straight away, but I would like to see, I, I sort of asked for this in a, in, a, in a national column about four years ago, a government of national unity uh, mm -hmm. after independence, where everybody just says, we're all Scottish now, we're all elected members of a Scottish Parliament. We will now work together to get what's best for Scotland and forget what, what the nastiness of any campaign, etc. The issue is that unless it's a democratic one that everyone accepts the gold standard, etc., that will never happen. You know, mm -hmm. So there's a lot about building a nation comes with accepting the result. Um, and that's why I prefer that we exhaust, even if we're stopped from doing it, at least let's try, let's exhaust it and carry the people with us to, to independence. All right, let's get a, a few of the questions. Uh, I, I saw that Nicola Sturgeon got visited by the Flemish uh, prime minister and um, and he apparently he made a statement with regard to Scottish independence. I'm not sure what the statement was. What do you think uh, additional trade contact with and Europe would, would mean? Is, do you view that as a positive sign? So, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, I was all ready to be really angry and blog about COP is happening in Scotland, but Scotland isn't invited. Uh, that's a stolen line from one of my, my members said that, and I went, I'm having that. Uh, <laughs> and then the First Minister basically gate-crashed it and made it look as if it was hers, except for the the, yeah. the, the things that went wrong where were blamed on the UK government. It was, it was quite clever, to be honest with you. I, like other people, are very frustrated at the lack of progress towards independence. I think they should have done a lot more than they have done. I think they should be making the independence case more often, etc. So I'm not a fanboy, etc. But when it comes to, sorry, that was what somebody called me on, on Facebook today. It touched a nerve. Um, what she did was very clever diplomacy, uh, mm -hmm. getting out, talking to world leaders as if she was a world leader herself. And we're going to see some benefits of that. I, I share that view. I think uh, I think most most of the countries didn't really understand what Scotland was. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Scotland, England, where's that? You know, <laughs> especially Obama, who said, "Welcome to the Emerald Isle." It's like, oh God, he was rather disappointing. But yeah, well, this is not the Emerald Isle. But yeah, uh, the other side of that is so you've got you've you've got the 
the Scottish government pushing and doing a reasonably good job of pushing for international recognition for Scotland. And you've got European countries looking at the UK and going, we really don't like them. It'll annoy them if we say things, good things about independence. And, and maybe even some of them might feel a bit guilty about what they did last time around. You know, but the UK is no longer a member of the EU. And if the UK is not a member and an independent Scotland would join, whether it would join EFTA or the EU, they're going to go, they're our guys. They're not. We like Scotland. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and EFTA could be a stepping stone to EU. It would just be much simpler to join the EFTA at least yeah. first. And then the, I think there were countries like Portugal that were EFTA oh. members before becoming yeah. EU members. So there's no reason it couldn't go that way. But EFTA would be much more, much more rapid and easy. All you have to do is send a letter to them and they're like, yeah, come on in. And then they'll get the Scotland back. In well, the yeah, yes as, yes, as long as the independence is legally accepted by the international community, it would be pretty quick. Um, I had uh, lunch a few years ago in economics conference with, uh, I think he might be the the head of the Icelandic uh, Reykjavik University now, uh, but he was the, the, the economic advisor to the to the president of Iceland. And he basically said, yeah, we'd bite your hand off, come straight away. You know, that's not a problem. But one of the things he also said was, look, don't see us as a stepping stone into Europe. See us as the best way to deal with Europe. So I'm, I understand. So I, the SNP are saying EU and not talking about EFTA publicly anyway. And that that to me could well be tactical. Uh, or it could be something they really truly believe. I honestly haven't asked them. But from my own point of view, I I think joining EFTA, well, for a start, EFTA would be very quick, and the EU would take about four or five years. Exactly. In 2014, it could have been we could have been the successor state. That was an argument that could have been made. Brexit's happened. We're no longer a member, and therefore, when we become independent, we will not be a successor state. Therefore, we'll have to reapply. And although we ace all of the conditions for rejoining, there is a process to go through which may take several years. And so, and so, joining the EFTA to start with uh, might be a good idea. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it as an, a stepping stone. I would say, well, let's do this, and if this turns out to be best, let's stay. Yeah. Uh, no, and if it absolutely. turns out not to be best, then let's take the next step. I, I, I agree with that. And, and you know, and, and, and if there was a democratic decision, if if EFTA was joined back in the EEA uh, and then Scotland can make a rational decision, as we say in French, tranquillement, you know, not under the pressure of being out of the EEA, Scotland would be in the EEA as part of EFTA. And yeah. then, 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 the, then the EU would have to say, OK, well, OK, you're kind of happy in EFTA. Well, we'll get, you know, we'll offer you this. We'll offer you this. Make the EU have to make a case for joining them rather than Scotland. Yeah, because uh, if you go into negotiations with the EU having absolutely 100% promised EU membership to the population, they then go and say, Can we join? The EU can make you do anything because yeah. you have no options. It's, it's not yeah. a negotiation I would like to be part of. And I do think they would negotiate in better faith than the UK government. But oh, absolutely. I mean, they've demonstrated that throughout the Brexit process and especially now with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Thing that's going on. So uh, I don't think they even understand. To be quite honest with you, I genuinely don't. I don't think that they're being really evil about this. I think they're just not that clever. I don't think they understand that the ramifications of all. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's really sad. Okay, a few more quick questions. Not that this, not that this one has a quick answer. But what do you think will be the main differences between the 2014 and and the possible 2020 2023 referendum campaign? We alluded to this before. You, for the for the viewers that didn't see it earlier in the program, uh, Gordon talked about how he did. He felt that in 2014, the economic case uh, for independence was not made strongly enough at all. So, given that, what what are some of the other differences between the the 2014 and and a future referendum campaign? Ooh. The biggest difference is we're going to win this time. 
And I think the, 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 other, the other difference is that we're, we're going to be starting from, I think we'll start from 55 when it happens, but let's say it started now, or if this is the starting point that we're starting from 50-50, we started, I think, about, people argue about it, 27, 28%. Uh, mm. Yes, last time round. And, you know, that's maybe it's 35 if you take out the undecided, etc. But we've done the heavy lifting. We've done the hard work to get there. We now have something along the lines of even when we were at 58%. And then we've dropped down to, I know one of the polls I did, somebody asked what was the last, the last poll I did was August and it was 47% yes when you take out the undecided. So we've dropped, you know, from 58 in one of my polls to, did I ever get 58? I think I got 56, sorry. So, but anyway, um, we've dropped from 58 to 47, which might not be comparable because of different, different uh, polling companies. But that drop wasn't because no went up. That's because the undecided ballooned, right? Uh -huh. yeah. And they right. can come back under the right circumstances. And that wasn't there before, you know, so it's not, there isn't a yes, no. Everybody seems to think that if you're yes, then you're this dedicated there. Everyone's as dedicated as, as, as I am. And actually a whole load, most of the people who vote yes uh, are just yes and a little bit more than just yes. And a little bit more than just, you know, quite yes, I think I'll definitely do it. You know, most people who vote yes are not the people who wear the Believe in Scotland badges or campaign for a political party, etc. You know, they can swing backwards and forwards, but they didn't swing back to no, they swung to undecided. And so I think we can get them back. The really big difference is that starting at 27%, going negative would be suicidal. So the Yes campaign last time was relentlessly positive. It mm -hmm. made the mistake of not having enough detail to be relentlessly positive about. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that I think we've we've learned a lot now uh, as to what needs to be said and how it needs to be presented. But it was relentlessly positive. Now we can be negative. Brexit is a mess. Brexit's harming Scotland more than it's harming the rest of the UK because we export more, because our economy's stronger when it comes to international connections. Yeah. Because we make things, we make whiskey, we export food, these sort of things. And so it's harming us more th than it's harming anyone else. And it's also harming us emotionally because we were more felt more European um, yeah. and less British. Uh, and the other uh, thing is that, uh, you know, the, the, the mess that's been made in Westminster gives us more negativity. So for, for the first time, we have permission to go really negative on them. It's not scaremongering either because everybody believes it. Yeah, and, everybody and the other thing is, even if Labour take over, cannot help the situation because they will not reverse Brexit and therefore Labour are going to be important at this uh, election. Um, note of optimism for the for the, for the the coming years that uh, Scotland will be independent? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a couple of things uh, possibly to say. Uh, first of all, um, the difference between Believe in Scotland and Business for Scotland and a lot of other organizations is that, that we campaign, we reach out to the undecided, we reach out to the soft no's and the soft yeses. All of our materials are written for them, not for the yes movement. And therefore, less people read them. And therefore, less people donate to us. And yet, I think we're doing the heavy lifting. We're doing the important stuff. Other people may disagree. I think if you're, there's the yes movement, which is people who talk to one another and support one another. And then there is the yes campaign, and the 112 groups that campaigned with us, the National Yes Network, the national, the political parties that are working with us and ourselves and some other national groups are, are getting to grips with ideas and going out there and saying, so there's a group right now just uh, the other night happened, you know, how do we protect the NHS from uh, this new bill in England, etc. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear people getting out there and campaigning. So that's the first thing. 
I would say. The second thing is that uh, we're not going to get everything right. There are, there are tough decisions to be made, but we have to stop knocking one another. And if somebody's trying, then, and you don't think they're doing a good job, give them a better idea. But if you don't have a better idea, then can it? You know? And the final positive thing I'll say is that starting from 50-50 or 55 uh, by uh, in the spring next year, yeah, we got this. Unless we mess it up, we have got this. We're going to win this time round. And I think we're looking at probably September 23, possibly May 23. It's like 18 months away. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's running a campaign should be panicking. If it's 18 months away, we're not ready. We've got to start campaigning now. That's just why we've tried to hit the ground running, which is why we tried to fire up the S groups, why we tried to fire up the SNP with this paper. We are there to work with anyone that wants to reach out to the undecided, that wants to put positive messages out there. And if you've got great ideas, come and talk to us. We'll work with you. I'm sure that people will be a lot more motivated when there is an actual date set and there, there's something that can be engaged sure. in. Okay, yeah. well, thank you very much, Gordon, for being with us this evening. Thank you very much.